Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. production. Hi. Hello. Hey. So hi, everybody. We're on three screens at one time. This is... <laughs> multitasking we are we are live from uh Blitz, blitz's new kitchen uh we're sitting inside hope inside hope you know it's funny for me because i feel like we should have some soundtrack music swelling some violins and things going because we're five minutes to midnight Before on a new day evening. yeah mm. i know Second. so in Second. the movies Second. in the movies the protagonist or the antagonist mm. would have solved their issues and and you know the, the music would swell and the credits would begin to roll and all that sort of thing good morning good morning everybody thank you for joining us so i um oh, i was getting teary-eyed already you guys this is bad yeah we're squashed into the into the uh mm -hmm. into the bench we're close and it's gonna get hot <laughs> it's gonna get hot and it's tight in here because we can't turn anything on because it makes so much noise so we can't turn it on but it's fun to be in here she's done a great job we can't really give you a tour because if we touch one piece of equipment everything will fall over because <laughs> <laughs> like we have so much stuff going on. So I, I just want to tell you that, you know, I got up this morning and I was excited to come and see her because I haven't seen her since everything was like torn out of her. I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, so I, I got up, and I took my supplements. Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> um, by the way, people might want to know. So I just take vitamin D, I take uh, zinc and I take vitamin C regularly. Mm -hmm. And then every now and then I'll, when I go to the store, I'll buy something like a waste of money on like something like CoQ10 or uh, mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. And mm -hmm. I'll use it till the bottle's gone. And then I'll switch to <laughs> oh, something else, glucosamine and chondroitin or something. And, mm -hmm. But my staples are vitamin C, vitamin D, and zinc. What about you? Um, I do uh, one for gut health. I do uh, a bunch of immunity. So it uh, depends on the day really and how I'm feeling. But uh, zinc, C, I don't do all the time. But I do do um, D. And um, I do uh, that fire cider that we've talked about before mm -hmm. that you've had. That is from my friend Desiree. So you um, take you take you take like minor 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 immunity. Yeah, you take more mostly. elaborate stuff than me. I'm sort of just the basic uh, Ralph's vitamins. Oh, we need to talk. <laughs> <laughs> no Ralph's vitamins. So, so you know, I have, I have a question. Which which screen do we look at? Do we just kind of change from one screen to the another yeah. screen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, this is fun. Actually, this is a lot of fun. So then I got in my car and I and I and I drove and I paid four dollars and seventy-five cents a gallon for gas. I know, right? Yeah. I won't even say who I'm thanking for that, but never mind. Uh do you I don't how, know. Do you I don't know, know how much she gets to the gallon. Oh. Oh, I would say about eight. Eight to ten. Yeah. Yeah. With these gas you'll be, you'll be going about yeah, you'll be going about you'll be staying in the same place. <laughs> You're right. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, look at I'm not going to get into the uh, the politics of gasoline, other than to say there's okay. politics behind gasoline, um, because they don't want people driving. Well, we should be electric, but that's a whole other that's a whole other topic. Well, you couldn't really have an electric car. Well, you could, but you wouldn't get very far. Yeah. Yeah, they don't have the technology yet. They will, though. They will. Yeah, they and will. they might. They might just not have released it. So, but anyways, this is not about 
gasoline and cars. This is yeah, but but question. I'm wondering what I wonder what people pay in their own states uh, or countries for that matter. Mm-hmm. Some countries think that four seventy five American dollars per gallon is cheap. Really, like the European countries, I think they pay a lot more. I don't know what it is in Australia, uh, but I know that in certain states it's buck buck and a half less. Well, I'll right. let you guys know once I'm on the road. We'll so uh, before we before we get into discussing if there's been any births or anything like that, uh, I just want to preview what we're going to do today. I've got a couple of of news items or or a, a brief COVID update, and then listen. I decided that uh, as our last podcast here side by side for at least a while. Um, we posted a post on Instagram a few weeks back about asking you for topics that you wanted us to discuss. So we're going to do rapid fire uh, reviews of some of these topics and give our short sentence opinions of them. Yeah. And since we're live, if you guys want to put store, you know, questions in, I don't know that we'll get to all of them, but we, we may. So if you have questions, um, definitely. I told somebody I was going to answer a question. I have to think about it. Um, but definitely put them in the, in the chat. That's hope. That's hopeless. Hopeless. <laughs> that question is gone. Uh, hey, well, <laughs> in I the cavern that, of my brain. I don't know that I'll be answering questions because I don't know that I'm afraid to touch my phone because it might fall over. <laughs> you can touch it. Stu has never done a live before you guys. This is the not on Instagram. Time. Yeah. We used to do Facebook and Instagram simultaneously. That's true. That's yeah. true. Now that, now that he knows how to do it, watch out. Stu might be doing lives all I the could. time. It's pretty easy. It's I see really people doing easy. it all the time. Yeah. My, just, my assistant Emily does it. Yeah, whatever you're doing, just right. turn it on. And there's your fly. We have one fly <laughs> and no spiders. Because Bliss has a spider story. Can you tell your spider story? Uh sure. Sure. <laughs> it's part of your it's part of Hope's legacy. Can tell you my spider story. Um, I had a really uh those of you who follow me on Instagram, um, if you noticed, I changed it, which we have to change our outro for the podcast. I took off midwifery, so it's just birthing bliss now on Instagram. Oh, wow. That's a big, that would have to change a lot of stuff. We'll see. Anyways, okay. birthing bliss. If you follow me, you might've seen that the other day I had a, a really <laughs> difficult day, including breaking a key in the lock and having to have a locksmith come out and draining my battery with the new stereo. And I just had all of these things. Finally, at the end of the day, I have this really cool light show when it's not nighttime, Stu, but you should come back for the evening light show. Um, and so I brought the boys out and we were just chilling like at the end of this hard day. And, uh, I put my hand up to show one of the boys something and I got like this sting. I mean, it was like, it was like I had punctured myself with something and I was like, ow, I stabbed myself. Like what's so sharp up there. And then I looked and a spider fell down and I was like, oh my God, that spider just bit me. And you know, I'm not a go to the hospital kind of person. Like I don't go unless I really think they have something there that's going to save my life is basically when I go. And uh, the pain started spreading down my finger and down my hand. And um, I was like, you guys, I looked at the boys. I'm like, you guys, what should I do? And they go, you're the mom. <laughs> we don't know what, what to do. And so we went in the house and they were looking it up and my son comes back out and he goes, mom, I think that's a brown recluse. I think we need to go to the ER. And I was like, okay. So we all pile so you caught in. The, you caught the spider. We caught the spider. Um, and we went to the, we drove hauled ass over to the ER and I was acting like a freak. I have to tell you, I called Stu, of course, just like my dropping things on my foot story, like Stu, he goes, I don't know yeah. about spiders. Right. <laughs> so I stopped. I'm going to start a, I'm going to start a new service, <laughs> right? Call Stu with bizarre, odd things that bliss, ha- that happens to bliss. <laughs> Only bliss. <laughs> <laughs> Call Stu. 
too. Um, and then, um, so I stopped these really nice paramedic guys and I was like, okay, guys, I got bit by a spider. I think it's a brown recluse. Like, what are they going to do for me in there? Wait, wait, you, you called some, oh, called. No, they were coming out of the ER, these paramedics. Oh, so you just asked the question, yeah. right. And so they were so nice. And uh, they're like, they're going to give you Tylenol. I'm like, well, that's stupid. And they said, if it, this, this, and this happens within this amount of time, you should come back. But probably if you're not, if it's not like, it's, can you feel this? Is it spreading? And by that point, it kind of, kind of settled down. And so I was like, well, well you, you, you did the right thing though. You did like the snake venom thing. You sucked at it, right? I didn't feel anything coming out. I did. Yeah, I yeah. like, and, and spit. spit it out. Right. Yeah. But I didn't actually like taste anything or feel anything moving. But anyways, I'm, I'm alive. So and that's your good. still there. And my fingers still I think well, if it was truly a brown recluse, isn't aren't you supposed to be like get like necrosis? Yeah, and, yeah. it's a uh, necrotic venom. Yeah. So, anyways, sounds like something out of a my son, scary story. My oldest son said, "Mom, what do you think? You're starting. You're going to go into the wilderness. Acid for blood. This is why people ha- live in civilization because there's dangerous things out there." And I was like, "Okay, okay." Hey, people get bit by spiders in their own homes all the time. Well, I did. I know. <laughs> I know. So, hey, did you guys notice my cup? Thank you, Stacy Blackwell. Gave me this cute little cup. So. You, guys, you guys know it's my cup. <laughs> it's a bamboo cup. I made. It, I switched him from his water bottle. Was, okay. Yes. Did you have any births? I had no births. I almost had a birth. What's interesting? Last night there was a one of our clients that I'm a doctor doing the couch package for for the fifth time. Aww. Um, almost went into labor, but then I never heard a word. But what's fascinating about her is everybody who's listened to us for a long enough time knows the story about the Breach family from Orange County who came up, who I'd never met, who were eight centimeters. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's a great story. So this is, this is the same house. Oh. The same couple, the same house that all those other births were in as well. And this is the same house that that lovely couple from Orange County got to have their birth She's in at the same time. She's not fifth baby? Yep. Wow. And she has, the, she has four kids, and I think the oldest is like six or five. Oh my, I had no idea she had that many kids. Wow. Okay. She just, yeah, she, and she makes, and they're, oh, they're so cute. She just, it's like, she should she should never stop. We should just populate the world with, with her babies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but she, but her labor petered out. But I was kind of excited. I was hoping she would deliver last night. Then I could because that would make that whole story even better. That mm-hmm. here I am back in that same house where we had the breach delivery. I think it was like thirty two minutes after the other baby was born. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, you were there. I was there. Right. Um, you know what I was thinking for for those nice of you, house too, by the way. It is a nice house <laughs> for those of you who have been kind of with us for a long time. Um, you know, obviously Stu was recording before I joined. Um, but then we were, we used to do the podcast side by side in, uh, John's studio. Right. And then coronavirus pandemic, all that hit. And then we started to do the fireside chats. We were doing live fireside chats. I think chats. we had fires like in two or three of them and, yeah. then, it, and then it got too hot. Got hot. <laughs> in my office. So then we yeah. were in my office for a little bit. Then we moved to the kitchen mm-hmm. and now we're on hope. And then we're going to be separate. Oh, and then there was the time that I was at John's place when the boys were sick and we were doing a couple oh, we did, of Yeah, them. we did a couple of them virtually that, that mm-hmm. way too. And we're, that's what we're going to continue to do. When, you yeah. have, when you're in a place where you have some time and good reception, you'll let me know and we'll set something up. And it won't be live, probably. They'll all be back onto the podcast app. This one is actually going to be played as a podcast in, yeah, for people, in, in a few people, weeks. There are people that, that ask me questions like, how do I see you guys if I don't do anything besides be on my computer. So there's some people that don't use these kind of apps, you know? <laughs> yes, you do. 
it's me. I don't. Oh, God. All right. So um, I got a couple of things that I want to talk to before we start to go. Uh, we're going to do the rapid sequence of rapid questions. Yeah. Um, every week I get a bunch of journals and I go through them and I try to pick out articles that might be interesting. And then, of course, I use the highlighter because I want to do the highlights, right? Right, the highlights. Oh, you're going to take, oh, the highlights, right? The highlights. Right. So we can, we can show them things this time. Yeah, so this is, um, I've got two articles from the American Journal of OBGYN, which is the gray journal, which is also the journal of our two best friends, who cool. are not our, by, by that I mean they're not our best friends. What was the nickname I gave them? Nackenbaum. 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 <laughs> right. Anyway, this is not by Nackenbaum. Either one of them is by Nackenbaum. Uh, but it goes like this. This is a this is a question which is really an interesting question, but they forgot one major thing in their article. And I'm going to see if you can pick it up. Oh God. You'll pick it up. Okay. Because besides, I actually wrote it down here. So you'll see it when I flip the page. <laughs> <laughs> I got cheat. I got cheat, cheat, cheat. notes. Right. <laughs> when does a fetal head rotation occur in spontaneous labor at term? Results of an ultrasound-based longitudinal study in nulliparous women. So this is for nullips only. And they looked at uh, births from 2016 to 2018, mostly in Iceland. And they found that with a single fetus, a cephalic presentation, spontaneous labor after 37 weeks were eligible to enter the study. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cervical dilation was clinically examined. Uh, with vaginal exams mm-hmm. and fetal head position and subsequent rotation were determined using both trans abdominal and transperineal ultrasound. So not vaginal ultrasound, but you can scan from the perineum and you can actually see that. Wow. Transperineal. Yeah. yeah, because it's really easy to see the skull and you can, once you see the skull, you know where the sagittal suture is or, the, or like, cause you can see the faults, which is right down the middle, which goes between the two halves of the brain. That might be cool to have if you had like a really long labor. Well, it's another thing that could you, could, like... you could use your little, what do they call it? The butterfly or whatever it is. These people that are on the phone. Yeah, your new special apps that people are getting. A lot of midwives are getting them. They're, How much is that again? I heard it was between two and four grand, I think. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah, you just have two, I might be wrong. Two but, to four grand but anyway, laying around. If you're having somebody that you can't tell, but but usually we're all skilled pretty much to tell by vaginal exam. If somebody's not progressing, whether you do a vaginal exam, you can feel the sagittal sutures, you feel for your fontanelles, you know that the posterior fontanelle feels more like a like three three things and the anterior one feels like a diamond. Right. right. It's a triangle and, and a, a diamond. diamond. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, well, so when, it, when I just, I just highlighted something cause it was really interesting to me when, you know, I wondered how many vaginal exams are they doing because yeah. I wanted to know how they're determining dilation, stuff like that. So she, it says here, now there, there weren't this, there were only 99 women in the study, but the, so they're, I'm not exactly sure how these numbers add up, but maybe they're adding up. If someone had one exam and two exams, they're both in the one and two exam. Um, I'm not sure exactly, but they said, you're going to love this. Four women were examined once, 93 women twice, 60 women three times, 47 women four times, 20 women five times, 15 women six times, and three women eight times. (laughs) How many times do you examine a woman later? Once. Maybe. And, and or zero. really long ones that are, you know, are yeah. having a dysfunctional labor pattern More where we're not sure that yeah. maybe, you know, Two three. Or three. Right. <laughs> and you, and usually maybe. with mole tips, you probably don't do any. Yeah. And some primates I haven't been doing any. Right. I've like just been. Eight, eight vaginal exams. And, and they were probably, that's probably underestimated. <laughs> 
I do have a vaginal exam story when you're done with this that I want to uh, interject. Yeah. Occip yeah. Occipital posterior positions persisted in greater than 50% of the cases through the first stage of labor. By that, they don't mean direct OP. They mean at either four o'clock or eight o'clock. So either ROP or LOP. Mm -hmm. they, they specifically state that. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, but they were anterior in 53 of 86% of the cases after full dilation. So more than half of women labor down, not OT or OA, but OP mm -hmm. in primates. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Problem is all this data is going to be completely useless when you know, when you see what, what I wrote on the next page. Okay. Okay. So conclusion, we investigated the rotation of the fetal head in the active phase of labor in oliparous women in spontaneous labor at term using ultrasound to provide accurate and objective results. The occiput posterior position was the most common fetal position throughout the active phase of the first stage of labor. Occiput anterior only became the most frequent position at full dilation and after the head had descended below the mid pelvic plane. So that's just an interesting piece of information, but what did they leave out? I did cheat. Yeah, cheat. <laughs> um, no mention of epidural or not. Right. Yes. How many of these hundred women in the study do you think labored without an epidural? And how does that affect? And of course, we all we all positioning. We all believe, at least you and I. I mean, my experience is that epidurals tend to all of us. Yeah, well, that's all of us in here <laughs> except the fly. Don't ask the fly. <laughs> but I think we all uh, think that um, that epidurals do create more OPs. Well, if, if they're saying that that's a common thing anyways, which I, I you know, I think that if we But they deliver. I mean, like I, I've seen yes. a lot of OP, I've seen a lot of people with epidurals in my older days. The baby was persistent OP and we had to put vacuums on. Babies, it just takes longer. They can deliver. Mm -hmm. OP babies can deliver, you guys. They're, in the midwifery world too, uh, I love spinning babies. I really do. I think it's a great resource. However... I don't think that everybody needs to uh, be so concerned with position so early. You know, I have women like really worried about position and I'm like, you have no idea what position your baby's going to be in labor. And sometimes when you do all the things in labor and baby persists in OP, it sucks because your labor's longer and it's hard on your back. But sometimes the baby has that wisdom to know that the shape of your particular pelvis, I always say that babies are and mamas are like a lock and key, you know, uh, it's, it's individual for each baby. So they know how to navigate your particular pelvis. And that might be that OP is the way that they know that they need to get out. So you can do the things, but then you also have to go back to like trusting the wisdom in the body, move, get support, have patience, take time, eat, rest all that. We are told that occiput posterior tends to be a more difficult labor. It You've is. heard that, right? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's longer and it tends to be more painful because you have the back labor. Because um, the baby's, the back of the baby's head is pushing on your sacrum yes. and all the sacral plexus of nerves that yes. go through there, right? So if we can help it, obviously we want to help women have more ease in labor. But I'm just saying like the obsession around uh, trying to get your baby into the right position weeks and weeks before you go into labor is, is the same thing that we're trying to help people, you know, like, I don't want to concern women about this. Right. We always wonder that when we're trying to do something, is the stress of what we're talking about worse than the situation? And it's, right. yeah, if it's even going to 
happen. There so, you go. Yeah. Um, so I have want to tell something, right? Yeah. My very last client in LA was a repeat client who um, transferred to the hospital the first time for an epidural. She just really wanted one. And so this time when she got pregnant, she's like, you know what? I love midwifery care. I love working with you, but home birth, I just don't think it's for me. Like I really want an epidural. I'm like, great. So she said, can I just hire hire you for prenatal care and then go to Dr. Shavira like I did last time? And I was like, absolutely. So that's been the plan all along. Um, Her baby was born a little over a week ago, but she was telling me because she would go in, she, she had Dr. Brock covering her while um, Dr. Shavira was on vacation. And, you know, Dr. Brock wanted her to get, um, ultrasounds, uh, I think after her, after she became 40 weeks. Um, and so this woman that was doing an ultrasound for her was mocking her because she declined a vaginal exam. And she was French. She happened to be French. And so she was like, you American women, it's so ridiculous. Why would you, why would you, why would you uh, do that? And she was so upset. She texted and she's like, I'm going to write a letter. I'm like, you should write Wait, a letter. Who, who was the French woman? The, the ultra, tech? Yeah. The tech. Yeah. Okay. And had heard that she, you know, had declined this vaginal exam. And she's like, what if I was a, a you know, uh, a sexual survivor? I was saying, is that the right word? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's definitely the right word. And, and she um, was mocking her for not wanting a vaginal exam. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that we're talking about. Like it's your body. If you don't want a vaginal exam, especially if you're people not in labor. People don't have that's boundaries. Right. Boundaries and filters are not people's <laughs> strong points. People say some of the dumbest things ever. People say the dumbest things. Right. Anyway, so I just kind of, that reminded me when you were talking oh, and about by the way, I did, just so you know, on the podcast <laughs> that's coming out, and the one before this one, where I did it by myself because you were... Oh, you did? I didn't even know you did Yeah, that. I recorded one oh, by myself. Did. Great. I did, I did talk about the last birth that you had in California. Yes. Yes, yeah. I did. I'll have but to you listen can, to it. But you can, you can, well, I didn't, talk, you know, I didn't talk about it in the same way you would talk about it. I, I, uh, uh, I'll be listening like you guys, not knowing what Stu said. Yeah, I forgot what I named it. <laughs> it's still something or other, but it'll come out. Hey guys, those of you that are joined, um, if you have any questions on my Instagram, Stu's not going to answer questions yeah, I'm on af- his. I'm afraid to touch my screen. <laughs> <laughs> but my Instagram on Birthing Bliss, um, I, I'd be happy to answer questions. So, um, is there something else? Yeah, of course I do. Okay. All right, my brief coronavirus update for, okay. the, for the day. I'll try to make it brief. <laughs> um, again, it might, as we always say, our our updates may be down dates because <laughs> by the time this comes out, it it's two three weeks and things change so rapidly. But this is also from the Gray Journal, and it's also not by Chervenak and Grunbaum, who actually did have an article in this journal, which was the same article that I talked about a couple times ago, where they talked about how do you counsel people to get the vaccine, and if they choose not to get the vaccine, you must have counseled them wrong. Yes. Yeah, that one. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was still in the same. Anyway, this is called the Coronavirus Disease 2019 Vaccine in Pregnancy risks, benefits, and recommendations, but it's from a different point of view. It's from authors from the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, not from the two guys that we talk about all the time. And they, and here's what they said. Um, we hear this, I said, they, we hear this over and over that pregnant women are at higher risk of severe coronavirus disease 2019. The question is I have is, what does higher mean? Mm-hmm. All right, higher to me is a word like soon. I'll be there soon. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> what the hell does that mean? Okay. I mean, soon means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. Higher means nothing if you don't know the denominator, if you don't know what the numbers are. Sure. But they keep saying that. They keep saying that it's higher. Well, this article actually has a couple of numbers, so we can talk a little bit about that. But because you hear it all the time, they'll say it's greater risk. But if it, the risk is still really small, why are we giving this unknown vaccine to people? So these people are quite reasonable. So here's, and maybe they're quite reasonable because I have confirmation bias, obviously. Yeah, right? obviously. Okay. The safety and efficacy of the vaccines for pregnant women, the fetus, and the newborn remain unknown. And that's in the abstract, right? So we're going to go through the uh, highlighters because we <laughs> like the highlight here. So there were several studies they looked at, but they're all in, all of them have small numbers. There are no big studies yet. Here we are in uh, the end of June, early July of 2021, and there's still no real studies that tell you whether the efficacy or the um, safety of these things are, are good for pregnant people. The CDC data and other publications indicate an increased risk of intensive care unit uh, admissions, mechanical ventilation, and death in pregnant patients with symptomatic COVID-19 infection compared with non-pregnant women after adjusting for age, race, ethnicity, and comorbidities. However, these surveillance data have limitations as over 64.5% of the total cases involving women did not have pregnancy status recorded. So when they're comparing the control group of women, the pregnant women, many of those women may have been pregnant, may not have been pregnant. We don't know because they never asked. Mm -hmm. Again, it's garbage in, garbage out. This data was all, by the way, collected from an all-payer database. What does that mean? I suspect that means an insurance database. Mm. So that's interesting. Does that raise a question for you? Because it raises a question for me because we there's really good evidence from a lot of people, especially people that worked in ERs, so that they were upcoding anybody who came in, like the guy who died yeah. in a motorcycle accident had a COVID death. Yeah. All right. So or get, the car accident people have a COVID death. Because they get paid more money for mm-hmm. it. Correct. Because the government was either implicit or stupid. All right. There's really not a third choice in that. They either they either wanted more diagnosis of COVID or they didn't realize that people are nefarious and especially hospital financial chief off, chief financial officers, they're going to find a way to increase money. And if you get 30%, 60% more for somebody who's got a cold, if you say it's COVID, then if you say it's a cold, then why wouldn't you put down it's COVID? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And when they use the PCR tests that they were using, as we said, we've talked in other podcasts, the number of dilutions that they go through yeah. to get... I think they go through like 40 dilutions or more. Essentially, that's going to pick up a protein off a tomato, right? And tell the tell you that tomato had COVID. That's so be careful which tomatoes you eat. <laughs> okay. No, I'm just I'm just saying it's it's garbage in, it's garbage out. So how do you make a decision based on garbage data? Yes. And you do, and people do it Common because sense. because they have the biases. Common sense. Right. Let's see, it says, although the absolute risk for severe infection is low, as I've said, the CDC has included pregnancy as a risk factor for severe COVID. Why would they do that? So if the overall risk is low, why do you consider it a risk factor? To encourage vaccines? Eyebrows got raised, by the way, you couldn't hear that. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, I'm sure everybody's eyebrows just (laughs) went up on the thing too. All right, in current available data suggests, or that current available data suggests that approximately two to 3% risk of vertical transmission to the baby with a minimal rate of persistent neonatal infection. We used to say that there was no evidence of vertical transmission. There is some, but it's a really small percentage. And um, 
Consistent with these observations are data that shows that SARS-CoV-2 is not routinely detected in amniotic fluid, cord blood, or neonatal nasopharyngeal samples associated with affected pregnancies. So that even if there's vertical transmission, almost never does a baby get sick from, right. from the mother has it. Mm -hmm. okay? There is no evidence to suggest that the ingestion of breast milk from mothers with SARS-CoV-2 infection increases the risk of transmission to their newborn. Yes, which is great information for breastfeeding and pregnant moms to know. Right. So these are people with infection. These are not people who've been vaccinated. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then they compare, they look at other vaccines and they look at from 2009 from the H1N1. Remember H1N1? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. It was, it, that I think is also some sort of, uh, of um, SARS virus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, a consensus statement was published by, by all the, uh, the acronym spaghettis that you can come up with. Okay. ACOG, ACIP, CDC, blah, 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 American Academy, AAP, AAFM, all those things was published recommending that all women receive both the seasonal and the 2009 H1N1 inactivated vaccines during pregnancy. So back in 2009, they come up with this sort of thing. The administration of the seasonal and H1N1 influenza vaccine and tetanus toxoid vaccine, and combined with diphtheria and pertussis because you can't get tetanus anymore, has resulted in a 92% report, reported reduction in global pertussis morbidity and mortality says the CDC. Mm. I'm not sure what that means. Mm -hmm. Again, what is the morbidity and mortality? If it's, if it's one in a thousand, a 92% reduction means it's now one in almost 10,000, but it's still small. So we don't really, again, numbers without backing and all these papers do this. Yes. They don't ever give you, they don't, I shouldn't say they don't ever, because you know what I say about ever and never and always? Don't do it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever do that. Okay. <laughs> Counseling should include discussion of the... See, this is so different from the Chervenak and Grunbaum mm -hmm. paper. Mm -hmm. Listen to this. Counseling should include discussion of the risks and benefits for those contemplating vaccination before or during pregnancy or while breastfeeding with their trusted provider and support network. Mild side effects have been reported ranging from greater than 80% frequency of pain at the ejection site. Yes to a 40% rate of systemic complaints, including febrile morbidity, which on review has been disproven to be teratogenic to the fetus. So their fevers aren't that high, apparently. Or, But yes. this, is, this was determined by something called Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, which is something that comes out from the government once a week. I used to get it. I don't know. I think when I changed addresses or something, I just never, or I changed offices, I never changed the address. So, um, But the question is, uh, who's on these panels? Yes. You never know. See, you're, you're not agreeing with me just because you're agreeing with me. You're agreeing with me because you agree with me. <laughs> not just because you're my sidekick, right? <laughs> right. Right. Who's, who's on these panels? That's... Everybody on these panels, mm -hmm. like, like the former head of the CDC is now on the board of directors of, of Pfizer. Mm -hmm. So you don't think he has friends still working at the CDC? Of course he does. Right. So again, the point I'm reading, the point of rereading this is that this is another take on it, but also there's no way to know about any data. So you really have to do, as Bliss says, you have to go with common sense. You have to go with your gut. You have to go and look at your risk factors at your age group and your family history and your medical history and decide whether this is something that you want to do or you don't want to do. And, and is the risk of a vaccine, this is what I tell people when they're talking about vaccines for their babies on the schedules that you know we have is the risk of the vaccine being unknown of whether or not you're going to have one of these big 
reactions from it because people have, you go on to the VAERS, right? That's the name of it, the VAERS site. All kinds yeah, of and that's, reactions. Gar- that's a little bit garbage in, garbage out too. All, but I, I've heard, you know, anecdotal stories of people who've had, you know, heart attacks and like, you don't know if you're going to be that person. So you just have to weigh the risk benefit and go, is that for me, my age group and my risk factors, you know, is that a risk that I'm willing to take to, to try and protect myself from this? And there's just so many unknowns with this particular vaccine because it was rolled out so quickly that that's just something that needs to really be and everything about the, and everything about the individually and, and everything about the whole pandemic <laughs> and the lockdown stuff <laughs> has been suspicious in the beginning. Things are coming out. Mass, no mass. Lockdowns were stupid. Lockdown. There's lots of data coming out now that lockdowns did a lot more damage than they could have possibly done any good. Right. Countries that locked down. We've been talking about that since the fireside right. so chats. There's no way to trust anybody in positions of authority now. And then also the other factor re- involving whether to get the vaccine or not is coming from these ridiculous public service announcements and incentivizing you to get it and yeah, getting free strange. this and free that. It's really, really, really strange. Mm-hmm. And also then you have the pressure of your employer or somebody else saying that if you don't get vaccinated, we're gonna you're gonna fire you. Or like I talked in last week's podcast about my friend who got offered a good job, uh, a, a good part in a movie, but they said if you're gonna come, if you're gonna be take this part, you have to be vaccinated. Yeah. And so how do you you know you want to support your family? It's a good part. What do you do? I mean, it's a lot of pressure. All, my three boys all got vaccinated because they all work in that industry. Mm-hmm. And they're all in their twenties. Max is in his th- early thirties, but they're they're in the absolutely lowest risk possible group. Yeah. So, okay. Social pressure. It's a lot of social pressure. Although preliminary data report lower hospitalizations among vaccine recipients, these valuable data are yet not yet available and therefore cannot be fully addressed when counseling the pregnant patient. So when the doctor tell you know as of this month, the doctor says, well, if you get the vaccine, you're less likely to get really really sick. Mm-hmm. There is no data on that yet. It may be true, but then we don't know. Okay, so women with laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 along with obesity or diabetes or hypertensive disorders were significantly more likely to require mechanical ventilation or die. And for some reason, they included women over 35 in that group too. More ancient. So the odds ratio of that was was 3.85. Again, that's, that's high, all right? But what is the actual number? If it was one in 10,000 that died without it and 3.85 in 10,000 that died with those four mobilities. So again, yeah, we get it. those people may want to consider being vaccinated. They, that may tip the scales for them. Right. But if you don't have any of those comorbidities and you're under 35. <laughs> okay. Overall rates of severe morbidity among pregnant women remain low with ICU admissions approximately 3% and necessity for invasive ventilator support and death at one and 0.2% respectively. So even when you get really sick as a pregnant woman, you only have a 1% chance of being on a ventilator and a two per thousand chance or one in 500 chance of dying, even if you're really, really sick. Yeah. So that's a number that tells you that even though it's higher than when you're not pregnant, it's still a pretty low number. Right. When balancing (laughs) risks and benefits, it's important to clarify that there's no human trial demonstrating fetal and neonatal safety with the COVID-19 vaccine. Mm-hmm. All right, let me just read the summary. In our expert opinion, we recommend a comprehensive risk-benefit discussion regarding the lack of safety data before COVID-19 vaccine administration in pregnant women with preferential administration for pregnant women at highest risk of more severe infections-related diseases until safety and efficacy of these novel COVID-19 vaccines are ensured. Yeah. 
Good. Right. I like it. And then I did, I did highlight one thing here. It says you're supposed to talk to your trusted healthcare provider. I said that earlier too. And I, then I wrote that, and is that becoming an oxymoron? And I was like, who's that? Yeah, I know. <laughs> right. So boom. Okay. Boom. So this is from Ranger Sari, sorry, mm-hmm. who I know really well. She had a breech birth with us. Cool. Uh, she wants to know about uterine septums and bicornate uteruses. Mm-hmm. So what's your take? <laughs> <laughs> you, have, you have 20 seconds. I'm Go. A, I'm a use start. What do you, about what? Well, I mean, uh, does, in pregnancy, um, it, yeah. okay, well, I'll just go, I'll just briefly give my take and you yeah, chime in. I mean, okay? there's no, that's there's, why you're the best sidekick in the business. <laughs> there's no concern, right? I mean, you might have a baby that, uh, has a malposition. You might have malposition slightly, sometimes slightly increased risk of preterm labor, mm-hmm. uh, slightly increased risk of postpartum hemorrhage. Oh yeah. 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 Could I, you have the septum? Could yeah. be where the placenta is. Yeah. Um, other than that, I mean, people will tell you that it's, if you have repetitive first or second trimester losses without a big septum or something like that, you may be somebody that, that is, it would be a good idea to see a fertility specialist mm-hmm. to discuss the possibility of something called a, either a metroplasty or a hysteroscopic resection of the septum to get rid of that septum, to make your uterus more of a, of a round cavity than that having that biting thing in there. But you, I would recommend people who are diagnosed with that never, ever have uterine surgery before they try to have a pregnancy. I wouldn't do that. Um, because the uterine surgery itself is wrought with potential problems, including the worst thing, which would be scarring, something called Asherman syndrome, that sort of thing. And that makes that would take away your fertility for good. So you don't want to do that unless it's something where you've proven that you have a, a recurrent problem. Yeah. And one of the next question is from Pain-Free Birth, which I am a huge fan of her Instagram. Are you on her Instagram? I'm, yeah. I'm, I mean, she's I doing follow. such great... Uh, videos. I just love them. And I love the work that she's doing, but she put a post up recently about a woman with, um, a bicornate, I always say that right. Bicornate. Corneate uterus who had a VBAC in the hospital. Um, so you should go check that yep. out. Yep. Yep. Well, she asks pain-free birth asks about the erect trial. Well, she briefly, that's one of the questions she has. Mm-hmm. And I've just, I'm not even gonna go over that. We've talked about it before. But one of my podcasts and my blog, I think the podcast is all is also called Creating More Questions Than Answers. Mm-hmm. So you can scroll back and find that one. We do talk briefly about the ARRIVE trial. And then I also wrote a brief paper on it, which is on my blog site. She asked about aging placenta yeah. and post-dates induction timing. You can talk about that then. You talk There's about no, that. I mean, aging placenta is... <laughs> is what happens to the placenta over time, but it doesn't mean that it's not functioning properly. It's, it really is one of those things that we're looking inside of the womb and we're looking for problems and we're finding problems and then encouraging women to get induced because their placenta is now starting to fail, which is not true. It's just not true. Yeah. I mean, again, if you, if you are a low risk person and you have your 20 week structural ultrasound, Mm -hmm. right? Then anywhere the rest of the pregnancy, how are they going to know your placenta is aging? How are they going to know it's calcifying? Because there's no reason to do another ultrasound. Right. All right. Yeah. And if you find a, a grade three placenta, it's actually normal from about 34 weeks on. Right. It doesn't really mean anything. So, but they will tell you because you're over 35, we need to just check your placenta. And then they find that there's calcifications in it. And then it leads you into the cascade of interventions. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you follow growth clinically. Is the funnel height growing? Is she eating well? Is she gaining weight? Is, is, is the baby moving? Is there any pattern in changing? Um, 
if you have then suspicions, then you can look into it and Absolutely. then you can determine whether or not there's any issue. Yes. And then as far as post-dates induction timing goes, um, post-dates by definition means beyond 42 weeks. In you don't the, even see that in any, the, anymore. In the, birth, <laughs> in the medical birth world, post-dates is when you're one minute past 40 weeks. <laughs> All right. But that's not what it is. There's mostly, there's early term term and late term is the term definition between 37 and 41 weeks and six days. And that's all normal, right? Again, post-dates, the risk of stillbirth is the risk that people worry about. It goes up from about 36 weeks on, but it goes up very, very small. The, the, the amount that it goes up should be, infor- if you want the numbers, you should be informed of the numbers, but the, you shouldn't be making decisions based on the fact that it's high. Yeah, and between 41 and 42, specifically, there's a large jump. No, but a, but a, a large jump, still a small number. It is still a small number, right. but that's why we usually recommend in our practices that we start to do some testing. kind of post-dates testing yeah. between 41 and 42 weeks to just reassure everybody that things are going and, well. And, and it used to be when post-dates testing came into play, initially, if my memory serves me, because I think I was around back then, it was started at 42 weeks. Yes, which and then I it, support. And then they moved it to 41 weeks, and then they moved it to 40 weeks in one day, and now they moved it to 39 weeks. And, yep, 38. And again, part of it is fear, part of it is finances. We'll just leave it at that. You okay. guys, I just have to say, I'm going to apologize. Uh, I'm going to start to get a little more feisty because I'm getting really tired of just the same old bullshit. We talked about the, I, I think the every, fuckery. I think everybody the- right now is applauding. Yeah, I'm just so, you know, the inductions like going through the roof since Corona, the doulas are all talking about like almost all of their clients are getting induced. And then, of course, more C-sections for what, you know, Um, the impact, you know, you're talking about the impact of coronavirus. Like, what is the impact of of what we're doing to women, taking away their ability to be able to believe in their bodies, to believe in doing what they are meant to do. Um, and to the future generations of the babies that we're yes, delivering. all of it. It's, again, I think it, if I could simplify it down into one sentence, it's all about getting a healthy baby into a bassinet. Yes. And how it gets there doesn't matter. We talked about this brief, in previous, I've talked about this ad nauseum with, in my office. You know, I can't even remember when I say something, you know, who I said it to or how, if I said it on this forum or if I said it in one-to-one in an office setting or I said it on a Zoom meeting. But the goal of the medical model is to get a healthy baby out and how it gets there is not their concern. They're not concerned about that woman's next pregnancy or her psyche or anything about that. When that baby is out, that obstetrician's job is done. Right. That hospital knows that their, their liability is, is done. And that's the whole thing. And so they're not going to get sued for doing an unnecessary C-section. They're going to get sued for, you know, having a baby that doesn't work. So their whole whole way the medical model trains and indoctrinates each generation of physicians coming out of it is the the destination and has nothing to do with the journey, if I can say it that way. Right. And I think what I'm frustrated about is I, and I, and I will do it with you because you're so good at it. And I know that culturally, this is what we want. We want statistics. We want studies. We want science. We want, but I'm, I, I, you know, I've been, I've been around this journey for so long. And so have you, you know, we're both going on close to 30 or you're over 30 years. I'm close to, you know, getting close to 30 years and it hasn't changed. The, The needle hasn't moved very much. And what we're doing is we're fighting a system 
that is not interested in listening to what we have to say. So this is why I created the sanctuary in the first mm-hmm. place. Alex and I created the sanctuary. It, you know, was to, to take back birth, take back the power, give another opportunity, a possibility. And I know it's not for everybody to deliver outside of the hospital. Some women, like I shared earlier, want an epidural. Some people are high risk. Like there are appropriate times to be able to utilize what the hospital has to offer or the, the, the freedom of choice. But I just really wish that we could talk about, you know, as I was saying, pain-free birth is doing like, what do you get out of being able to be unmedicated in your own environment with people who support you with people who listen to you? Like how, how is that going to change culturally everything? It, it, it sort of, it, I told you I'm getting, and, and I'm going to go off on the, take a piece of what you just said and go off on a tangent about the definition of insanity. <laughs> doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Right. So what we're doing here is we're doubling down on things that aren't working. I mean, I, I look at I look at the working pub- hard. I look at the public education system, and the solution to we pay we pay more per, per student for the public education system than any other country in the world. And what do the teachers unions and the government want? They want more money. It's as if more money is going to make it better. It better. Mm-hmm. It's not going to make it better. And it's the same thing here. We have a system that's led us to over thirty percent of women getting a cesarean section. Right. We have. Increased, increased dissatisfaction. We mm-hmm. have uh, interventions. We have we have social and psychological scarring that no one even bothers to ask about. That, that's that's really deep. We hear about it because we're in that world, and all of you, most Every of you, are day. in that world. Every day we hear about it. Every day we're hearing about it. All right. Anyway, so we got to keep moving. Yep. Here's one for you from Oh me. Ho-Oki Afterbirth. Mm-hmm. She wants to know about physiologic third stage. Um, you're good at this. I love that it's just like, it's like, well, there's like a, a, there were, no, there were longer questions, but yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 had, I, I could, have no context. I couldn't write them down and then I couldn't have my phone to, yeah. to, to look at them. So, so leave, um, you know, you can't cut and paste from Instagram and like, uh, yeah, yeah. So leave so the woman alone. Why do we have more bleeding in the hospital? Why is there so much fear around hemorrhaging in the hospital? Because we're pulling placentas out of women. We're saying that 30 minutes it's not released in 30 minutes, it's adhered. And then we're, we're doing all kinds of, we're, we're separating the mom and baby. We're, you know, just the same way we talk about labor. When we're talking about the placenta coming, baby should be together. Mom should be relaxed. Oxytocin should be flooding. It's all interconnected. And, uh, there's less bleeding, less, um, complications when you just let, um, the body start to, cramp up again. And so the woman would start to notice that she's cramping. Um, you might see a separation gush. You will see a separation gush. That's how you usually know, um, a lengthening of the cord. And then you can even have the mom sliver it herself. Uh, you know, she could squat, she could do the traction. There's been some beautiful videos on Instagram that people have shared about women delivering their own placentas. Um, so the main thing is to, you know, continue to watch um, if you're a, a medical uh, provider, a birth worker, um, to continue to watch because that is when we can, if we are going to have problems, that's when we have problems is, is after the placenta is delivered, usually with bleeding most often. So, you know, that's what we're hired to be there is to watch and see if something's outside of the range of normal, but you have to keep everything calm, relaxed. Tell people, don't get on your phone. Don't start, you know, this is not the time you're to right. like announce that the baby's born to people that live somewhere else. Keep the container 
how intact. Long, I, maybe, maybe I missed it, but how long would you say is a reasonable amount of time before you... Some midwives let it go several hours. I think it... I think as that long as there's no... Physiologically, mm-hmm. I think it can take time. So um, I think that's your comfort level. But if we're talking about us as mammals, you know, I think sometimes there is like, just like some women can deliver over 43 weeks, you know, so there's a range of normal. Sometimes placentas come out in a few minutes and sometimes they come out in a really long time. So, okay. Well, yeah. I just want to say to people on my Instagram, if um, you're writing questions and some of them look really good, I'm, I'll probably try to get to them individually afterwards. I'll, I can find them again. Right. I can't remember. I think sometimes I, I can't remember. If I don't, if you don't hear from me, then go ahead and message me through Instagram with your questions and I will respond to you individually. Okay. Direct message. That's right. Okay. <laughs> um, recurrent shoulder dystocia from Lori.deal. Not a reason to schedule a C-section, correct? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. I mean, it depends, right? So if you're medicated, you can't move around from a midwifery perspective. The best way to handle uh, what we suspect is a shoulder dystocia, which is when we see the change in color in the head and we see the turtling. So the head comes out and then it starts to go back. So if we suspect that, the best thing you can do is change position. So if you're in the hospital, you're on your back, you're on, a, we have an epidural, that's much more difficult. So again, doctors are really afraid of shoulder dystocia because they don't have mobility in most of those women and they haven't been taught that. So, And, and I have, I have heard numbers. Uh, my memory is pretty good about numbers and, and, Statistically speaking, when you have one shoulder dystocia, there's about a 6% chance of having a second shoulder dystocia. But that doesn't include the fact that you're, you're the, the um, modifications that you're doing with Bliss, what you're talking about, is not being in that same position under that. But I've heard some ridiculous, ridiculous quotes from, from physicians who are saying, well, you have a 50% chance of having it in your next baby. You definitely need to have a C-section. That's a lie. It's not true. That's a lie. And... It's just call lies you, lies. We don't know what the first delivery was like. Were you doing uh, directed pushing? You know, were you pushing so hard that, you know, the baby didn't, you know, your muscles and your perineum and all of the tissues down there didn't have time to really let the baby out the way that it normally would in a physiologic delivery. So, you know, it's, it's like comparing apples and oranges. We do these statistics from the hospital model, and then we're trying to take them over to the midwifery model and it's, it's, they're different. So. Okay. Yeah. Mama Claire underscore (laughs) asks about cholestasis and home birth. All right. I'll take Mm -hmm. that one because, um, cholestasis is, 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 uh, uh, where you have a backup of bile salts. It usually presents as generalized itching hands and feet usually is where it starts. It starts. Yeah. And, and what happens is, is that it's got this reputation of having increased rate of stillbirth. So when you a diagnosis of cholestasis is made, and I believe that's when your serum bile salts, it's it made, it's a laboratory diagnosis. It, well, it's actually a clinical diagnosis, but you confirm it with laboratory. And when you're, when it's above 10, it's, I think, considered to be cholestasis. However, the increased rate of stillbirth doesn't happen until your bile salts are, most papers say hundred. There were a couple that said 70, but when still it gets really high. So if you have a level that's 27 and your doctor tells you that's, you have cholestasis, you could have a stillbirth. You don't have to be induced. You don't have to go through that. You could say, listen, I'm itching like crazy. Is there a medication I could take? And there is. Um, and it's a powder that you take six to eight times a day and it helps to relieve the itching. You could check your bile salts again in a couple of days. And if it's sort of stable around 27, 32, 34, 
you're not in any, there's no rush to get the baby out. It's not preeclampsia, which is a different whole different physiologic process, which can lead to problems with the baby and can lead to seizures, eventually become eclampsia or help syndrome. But this is just a, a problem with the liver. It's, I think, taught to medical doctors that once you have cholestasis, the treatment, if your term is to deliver you, but that is old thinking. I don't think that that thinking needs to persist anymore. I think it should be a informed consent process. Yeah. But I, as far as I understand, in terms of our laws here in California, cholestasis would be outside of our, um, Oh yeah. Yeah. She's asking about home birth. So outside of our scope, I was thinking from my perspective yeah. as home birth, cause yeah. I would never, I would never risk somebody out for, for early mild cholestasis. Yeah. But you so might, but yeah. If right. you have access to Dr. Stu and you want to do a home birth with cholestasis, that might be possible. And they have a couch. And they have a couch. They have to have a couch. Um, but you know, other parts of the country, I, I'm not sure, but it's one that we definitely, if, if we get those labs back and they're out of range and we can't get it under control. Um, so this would also be liver support. So acupuncture and all kinds of herbs. We'll go in. A lot of people have asked me about this protocol and we'll go into it more deeply in one of the future podcasts, but you can turn preeclampsia if it hasn't gotten full blown, you can usually turn it around. Um, I'm not going to say always, but there are definite things that you can do. Um, so it might, it might, if you develop cholestasis and you're with a midwife, it's likely that you'll be transferred out of care. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I was sort of, I was sort of in my own little box yeah, there. Okay. Right. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Mandy Carmen asks, she wants to know if, how about finding more OBs to support home birth? Yeah. Okay. Tell us. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody write in, write in your suggestions. I'm, I'm open. I've been sort of putting the word out there for a long time. I do have a little bit of good news for Los Angeles, however, is that our friend, Dr. Jabira is mm-hmm. applying for privileges at another hospital mm-hmm. where he will then be allowed to breaches? do breaches. Again. Yes. Right. That's awesome. That's you know, a, yeah. I've, I've suggested to uh, Stu um, that we should probably have like uh, some kind of registry or some kind of like, you know, stamp birthing instinct stamp of approval um, <laughs> of because people ask us all the time for doctors and midwives all, all over the, the country, country yeah. and we just we know our area really well. So I don't know. I think for breach could... providers, I refer them to the Coalition of Breach Birth. Mm-hmm. They have a map, and also Elliot yeah. Berlin on Informed Pregnancy uh, on his Informed Pregnancy website yeah. has a breach provider map. But wouldn't that yeah. be great though if we had a map of like, and we could recommend some great doctors? So I don't know. Maybe that's a future project. Yeah, because I get that all the time. And it, all the time, you know, do you know a breach doctor in in uh, Camden, New Jersey? It's like I don't know anybody. In <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> all right. We're not all knowing, unfortunately. All right. Birth root midwife asks about newborn jaundice, the equipment we carry, uh, and then she has a second question about ultrasound accuracy and fallacies. Okay. So newborn jaundice, so did you carry like the, the little, she, she, wanted, she mentioned the little like jaundice meter. What's that thing called? I don't know. Cause I don't carry it. Okay. So I don't carry a lot of equipment for this. Um, it's very rare to have pathologic jaundice and usually will show up within 24 hours if it is pathological. So there is, this is another one that people get really freaked out about. There's physiologic jaundice. Babies a lot of times will have that yellow color because they have, um, if we did the physiologic third stage, you know, and we've left everything alone, they have more red blood cells in their system that they have to break down. So it's kind of like when you get a bruise and, and the, the coloring under the skin, as the, as the blood starts to dissipate, turns yellow, 
that's basically what's happening. So you have to look at the whole baby, not just the baby looks a little yellow. Is the baby lethargic? Is the baby nursing? Is the baby eliminating? Like, are you in a place where you can give the baby sunshine? You know, is it a place where it's winter time and there's no sunshine? And you know it's what really, I mean? It's really it's important. A combination yeah, it's things. really important to get the baby outside. And the baby, when it's outside, not outside, just by the window, it doesn't even have to be direct sunlight, although direct sunlight like is good. I like direct, yeah. Right. Um, but, you, but you can't have them with their clothes on when you do that. Right. <laughs> their skin has to be exposed. Yeah, so just in a, in a diaper or naked. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, if you really are concerned, um, you as a midwife, you can draw blood um, from the heel. And they have these little microtainers and it has like a little scoop on it. And you puncture their, you know, punctures a graphic yeah. word, but you know. Poke poke their heel, just like you would for the newborn screen. And you can send that into the lab and you can find out um, the numbers. You can also send them into the hospital, obviously, but a lot of us don't want to, because we know that they, a lot of times it's going to be, they're going to keep them in right. longer than and, maybe they and need most, to and separated. And, and, and most practitioners, almost all practitioners don't carry what I, I'm lucky enough to have, which is a set of Billy lights. Yeah. I really want to get a set of yeah. Billy lights. I usually borrow stews, but now that I'm leaving. Yeah. Beth and I both have a set of Billy lights yeah, that were donated to us awesome. by the, by the Vanderbeeks. That's and, awesome. Because then we, they don't have to go to the hospital. We've kept so many, any other midwives borrow them too. So yeah. they know that we have them. So they'll call us. Yeah. And so in our little community here, we've been able to keep babies um, out, even when their Billy Rubin is high and their pediatrician is a little concerned about it. They just say, well, we need to put the baby in the hospital for Billy lights. And they will say, well, what about if we do Billy lights at home? Yeah. And, and sometimes you even will supplement milk because it's really early and dehydration will contribute to increased uh, Billy Rubin levels. Yeah. If you can't, if you're not eliminating. Yep. Right. So they mm-hmm. want to give them fluid, but, but mm-hmm. in the hospital, they'll stick an IV in your baby generally, or they'll want to stuff formula in your baby. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, so I don't carry the, uh, I forgot the name of the meter. It's a meter. It's a little thing where you can compare mm-hmm. color to it. Mm-hmm. But some of my midwives I, I worked with do, uh, ultrasound accuracy is not very accurate. The farther along in pregnancy you get, the less accurate it is. It's very, fairly accurate at eight weeks, but not very accurate at 38 weeks. For dating, you mean? For dating, yeah. Um, I'm not sure what the fallacy thing is. Uh, birth route. I'm going to have to uh, go back and look at your question. I just really took quick notes. We're we're going to run out of time right now on Instagram Live. Thank you for joining us, you guys. It's going to be so uh, amazing to be on the road and be connected with you. I'm sending you so oh, no, much you're, love you're just, from you're... my Instagram. We're going to be signing off soon. Maybe we'll finish um, answering some of these questions in a future. Or, or we might, we might continue a little bit right now to do some on the, po- you know, so that's on the podcast podcast. So oh, okay, you yeah. guys who've watched this now, you can tune on the podcast and just watch the last five minutes or something. Okay. Could you get more? So anyway, thank you so much for tuning in. Mm-hmm. So let's do, let's do like two more. Two. Great. And then we'll say goodbye. And then I think at a future podcast, what we have to do when you're on the road and you're just doing it from your phone, probably is you could, you can walk around and you give a tour Yeah. when she's complete, you know, when yeah. she's, when she's, she's looking really, really good. Almost you should done. see what she's done. I mean, the wood fixtures she's put in and the covers and the, and the upholstery, uh, the flooring, it's all new. It's all new and nice. You got a, you got a fixed generator or did you get a fixed generator? It's okay. fixed. All right. Great. Yeah. Aud- Aubrey Wander wants to know, is pushing necessary? Um, most of the time, no. Most of the time your body will push when it's time. So I, I'm, she, that's what she said. And she didn't say is coach pushing necessary. She just said is pushing necessary. Coach pushing isn't necessarily necessary, except on rare occasions when it is, mm-hmm. when, when there's an urgency to try to get the baby down mm-hmm. far enough. If you want to put a vacuum on or do something else, mm-hmm. uh, we're but, having non-reassuring heart tones, right? Uh-huh. But ultimately, the baby, uh, uh, the system is designed to expulse the baby. 
fetal ejection reflex. You just have to wait. We're just not patient enough. Sophie Dragonwich, which is one of my favorite names. There. <laughs> I, I like it too. Sophie Dragonwich wants to know how to best to support women in big hospitals. It's a really broad question. Mm-hmm. We've, dis- we've discussed it on previous podcasts, but I mean, other than the sarcastic response of stay out of big hospitals, um, you know, I, I think that have a doula, have, have a doula, have a really strong support team so that you yourself are not having to get in the middle of these discussions or advocating for yourself at that time, because that brings you out of your instinctual birth process into your cognitive functioning brain. And that will disrupt your labor. Yeah. And I do recommend that uh, you and your partner do a good childbirth education class outside of the hospital, because the hospital classes teach you how to be a good patient. And you want to really understand all of the potential interventions that could be proposed and how you might want to deal with them and understand them. Um, and as you always say, mm-hmm. you know, make an investment in your birth. And if your big hospital you think is your only choice, it's not right. You have other choices. Even if you have to drive a half an hour or an hour to a hospital that maybe has a better reputation or, a, you know, a, a physician or a midwife or has a midwifery practice, CNM practice in the hospital that, it's worth driving. It's worth going to. It's uh, you know I I've quoted you so many times mm-hmm. on your wedding analogy with, uh, with the birthing analogy that mm-hmm. you used to give at the sanctuary Wednesday night meetings. Yeah, and it's true. You, we put a lot of investment into our weddings, and giving birth to our babies and getting married are probably the two most important events generally in a woman's life. And when we we put all this planning into, we spend all this money on. And the other one, we take a look at our insurance card and we go where it tells us. And we don't think about anything. And so um, you would never do that for your wedding. If someone told you that you weren't going to get to pick the people you wanted to have there, they were going to pick your dress, they were going to pick your food, uh, all of those things, you would never tolerate it. And somehow because of the system, we, we just put up with it. We put up with being mistreated, not listened to, you know, obstetrical violence. Um, yeah. So if you know, you may not have the means and I understand that. And we need to make midwifery more accessible for everybody. It shouldn't be something that just some people can afford, but if you can, if you can afford it, think about it more as an investment into an experience rather than something that you're trying to survive. Yeah. 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 Okay. So we're going to stop with those there. We've got, we got several more. We'll do it on in a future podcast. We'll pick up the this rest of them. Fun. We're I want, getting hot. We've got, we've got, uh, Dina Mama and Chloe something 89. Chloe Clue. <laughs> Chloe Clue 89. Mm-hmm. V-Back Mama Heidi. We got the Go-Go Ma. Pinwheel Art. When I can't possibly read. Something 96. Euro Love 96. <laughs> Mary Hazeltine. Java Maddie. Sailor Rue. And Amy Audette. We're going to go through your things in a future podcast. I want to end with this thing that I wrote because I, I, like, I wanted to read this one time when Bliss is here. Many of you know the story. Uh, if you bought a Musa muffin, you know the story? No. You don't know if you bought a Musa muffin? No. Oh. It's not ringing any bells. You know what? I'm going to have to, I'm going to hold this for another <laughs> time then because I got to get, I'm going to go buy Bliss if you bought a Musa muffin. It's a book? It's a, it's a kid's book. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I wrote, I wrote a, in 2013, I got inspired and I wrote, um, in honor of pregnant women everywhere, I wrote a thing called "If you give a woman a pregnancy test." Okay, but we're gonna hear the other one. Well, you have to. You it sort of it doesn't have a lot of meaning if you don't know how 
Okay, so let's do the so other I'll one. So I'll read if you give a moose a muffin, and then I'll read. I love it. Okay, we'll do story that. Story time we'll do with that Stu. Story time, but I'll be wearing regular clothes. I won't be, never mind. <laughs> There's something that, that's going on now that's sort Oh, of, okay. Right. We'll leave it alone because you probably will think it's a good idea, <laughs> and I don't. <laughs> All right, everybody. So this has uh, been our first and hopefully not last podcast from Inside Hope. Yes. I'm going to find you. I'm going to go up and find you someplace. Yeah, I have. Some, I, I want to give you my uh, backpack because we talked about backpacking in some place together. So I want to give it to oh, you. Oh, so I have it so that I can bring it to you? Mm-hmm. Okay, because you mm-hmm. don't have room. In, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it today. Yeah. All right. So anybody, uh, we really appreciate you listening to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. Thank and you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram.